want to welcome everybody this morning and ask, go ahead and, man, look, I have to say it, the back doors are closed, most, well, Randy Turner just sat down real quick there, we're doing great, I have to ask, this is wonderful, we are glad you're here this morning, um, we hope that you come here encouraged and that you leave even more encouraged, challenged for the week ahead, a couple of announcements you want to share it, we always encourage you to uh, check your your bulletin that you have if you picked one up when you walked in. Also in the seat back in front of you, there is a white attendance card. So whether you are a member or a visitor, there's a, a side there for, for either or. Uh, we ask you to fill those out. And uh, just in a couple of songs, there'll be some young men that come down the aisles and, and pick those up from you. Uh, this Wednesday night at 630, we're going to have a, a youth-led worship uh, in the small auditorium. And so uh, if you're not familiar, it's just right down this hallway to the, to the left. Um, we want to encourage everybody to come and, and be a part of that as we kind of kick off our summer. They're going to leave uh, just a few days after that for their first session of camp. And so uh, it's a great way for us to start our summer. Having said that, our children, our youngest children, will not be in there because they are beginning what you have seen full-page advertisements and requests for the last couple weeks in the bulletin for our summer VBS and what that looks like here at West Irwin. Oftentimes we have a, a two or three day VBS and try to cram in as much as we can, but Donnie had a different idea this year and part of that uh, is a need for us to step in and be a part of that. Uh, instead of having a two or three day VBS, it's going to last throughout the entire summer on Wednesday nights. So there are different uh, activities, different themes, different crafts, different lessons that are going on and our children's ministry needs our help, uh, needs our help to facilitate those, to create uh, not just memories, but to instill Jesus in the hearts of our kids. And so we want to encourage you. Uh, I think uh, probably the best that's ever happened last year is when Ken Culpepper came up here and asked uh, for folks to sign up to teach our young men and young women's classes. And then he and his son-in-law uh, taught one of those as well. And so I know I won't do nearly as good of a job getting the response that I'm looking for, um, but I hope and pray that you will pray about that, not just to write that off, not just to say, well, I've never taught kids' classes. That's not, that's not my gift. You don't have to teach. You don't have to be the person that's up front. Um, they just need help. Uh, and so there are lots of different opportunities. You'll find those sign-up sheets uh, in the uh, entrance to the children's wing. Uh, and so we want to uh, encourage you to please consider that. Uh, tonight, uh, we only have uh, Bill's reflection class over uh, in the, the office building. There is no singing class tonight. But we do want to share with you what's coming up in the, the weeks ahead. Uh, because at the end of this summer, uh, we are having... Um, our Praise and Harmony workshop here at West Irwin. It's the weekend of August the 14th through the 16th. And so moving forward, we're going to have several nights where we try and learn some new songs uh, that, because Keith Lancaster is coming along with his son Anthony to, to work on uh, helping us improve our worship, our, our time on Sunday mornings, but just also connecting our hearts with God. And so we want you to go ahead and put that on your calendars if you haven't already, August 14th through the 16th. Uh, you'll also notice, you've seen, if you were in here early, you saw a slide for it. Uh, but we are in need, if you have happened, for whatever reason, to borrow one of the wheelchairs from here at the building, as we have some that we loan out from time to time, 
Um, we are in need of those to, to be returned. We do have need for them here. If you, however, are still in need of one of those, please let one of our elders or Davy Carter know, and we can work that out. That's not a problem. But if you're done with it and it's just collecting dust at your house, please let it collect dust here. Uh, it won't always be collecting dust. Uh, two more, and these are just kind of celebration uh, announcements. Uh, one of our uh, longest tenured uh, members here uh, just celebrated uh, another uh, rotation around the earth, and so we want to wish happy birthday to Carolyn Womack. Uh, you didn't know it was going to be you, did you? But it was. And so uh, we're, we're all grateful to know you, and we're glad that you're here with us and a part of that. We also want to celebrate a, a new family that's a part of our church, uh, Rachel Cox and her kids, Ian and Avery, who just happened to hear me say their names and looked right up this direction. And so they, they placed membership here last week. You saw their picture in the bulletin today. So, Rachel, would you all three please just stand up for like a hot second so we can thank you all, and we're glad you're here. I want to ask that everyone now please, I should have just left you all up, but everyone please stand. Uh, we're going to begin our time together in prayer and then uh, be led in worship. Holy Father in heaven, God, we are grateful for, for the love you provide for us, for giving us all the things that we need and so much more. God, we are grateful for your felt presence in our lives, for knowing that we are not alone, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you walk with us. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to worship you together, not just alone in our homes, but to freely be able to gather and be encouraged by this body of believers. And God, today, as we lift our voices in praise to you, help that to be honest, help the spirit to move us, and God, that we be challenged by the word. It's in Jesus' holy and wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Worthy of praises, Christ our Redeemer. Worthy of glory, honor, and power. Worthy of all our souls and
before John leads us in our shepherd's prayer, the elders have asked me uh, to make this announcement. Jay Bynum and Galen Siegler are resigning from the eldership, effective July 1st. They want it clearly understood that they are not doing this because of issues or concerns they have with the other elders or the church here. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. They have both served the congregation faithfully and unselfishly for multiple years as elders. Uh, Jay for almost 21 years, or a little over 21 years, Galen for about 10 years. They want everyone to know that they love their West Irwin church family and will continue to worship and serve as a part of this church. With the men that have been added to the eldership over the last several years, they both feel the church is in good hands with the current elders and that God will use them as shepherds and leaders to help this church family continue to worship the Lord and serve our community and our world and will grow the kingdom throughout the years ahead. To Galen and Margie and to Jay and Debbie and all your families, your West Irwin church family offers a heartfelt thank you for your years of service and sacrifice for this church and for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Good morning, church. Um, Jay, Galen, I also want to thank you for your service and for your commitment to this church. Uh, Y'all have served us well, and we greatly appreciate uh, all the sacrifice and the service that you've had here. Um, I would like to make a couple of uh, announcements on our prayer and care list. Uh, We got word this morning that Misty Ford fell and broke her hip, so we need to make sure we keep her in our prayers. also, Gene uh, Denman, brother of Shirley, brother-in-law of Shirley Denman, uh, passed away. And as you know, um, she had another brother-in-law that recently passed away. So please keep the Denmans uh, in your thoughts and prayers. And also, I would ask that you look at our bulletin. It's up to date with all those that are on our prayer and care list. With that, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you with praise and thanksgiving. Lord, you are an awesome God. Lord, we know that everything we do is is possible through you. Lord, we ask that you be with this church here, Lord, and that you that you strengthen us and you watch over us and Lord help us to to be a shining light in this world. We know that there's a lot of evil in this world, and, and Lord, we know that through you we can be that shining light. We can be a, a beacon in the darkness for those who don't know you and that we may attract them to your light and teach them, and hopefully that they will become closer to you. And we ask that you please touch their hearts, Lord, and bring them into your glory. Lord, we want to thank you for all the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that you show us. 
every day, Lord. We know we're not deserving of that. We know that we fall short of your glory and, Lord, that we struggle with sin. But you, you're always there to forgive us and love us and strengthen us, Lord. We also ask that you be with all of our teachers here at West Irwin, Lord, that you may give them knowledge in the lessons that they teach, that we may grow stronger and closer to you, Lord. We also pray for the deacons here and the ministries that they're involved in. Please bless those ministries, Lord, and, and help them to work through those and to strengthen those ministries. Lord, we also ask that you be with the elders here and that uh, you give us knowledge and wisdom and guidance through the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we may continue to, to lead this church and continue to make this church strong and, and, Lord, to be an example of your love and your grace and take your word to the world, Lord, and help us to take that word in a manner that's pleasing to you with, with love and thanksgiving and forgiveness like you show us, Lord. And we ask that you just help us to be that beacon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To help us prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, we'll sing How Great Thou Art. Oh, Lord, my God, when I am I want to share with you a story of a fellow that I worked with at one time. His name was Joe O'Neill. We worked for the same company, and he was actually our representative in San Diego, California. And I met him at a national meeting a number of years ago. And Joe was a very pleasant individual, always had a smile on his face, would always say hello, but didn't really know him that well. And honestly, I just kind of thought Joe was a surfer dude from San Diego. And let me tell you, I thought wrong. We were at a meeting, and he got up, and since he was the local rep, he kind of gave a welcome address, and he told his story. So when he was in college, growing up in New York, both of his parents died of cancer, and the company we worked for was a cancer-related company. We, so his parents died. He changes his major to a science-related degree, he then moved to California and went to work for a research institute in their lab. 
and eventually he became a representative for the company that we both worked for at the time. Well, he gets married, and his first wife came down with colon cancer, and she eventually passed away. And then he gets married a second time, and his second wife developed metastatic breast cancer, and she passed away. And he's telling this story, and there's a picture up behind him, and it's, it's, he had just gotten married again, and it was his blended family. And the woman he had married, which would have been his third marriage, well, she had lost her husband to brain cancer. And I thought, he's been through a lot. And there's a lot of us in here who have been through a lot. But what he left with us that day was three things he lived by. First thing he said is, the weather always changes. And if you think about it, it does. The second thing he said was, the things we do every day, it matters. The interactions that we have with each other in here, it matters. The interactions we have with people outside of this building, it matters. And you may be wondering, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? It's because of the third thing he said. Life needs a reason for optimism. And that's what this does. So I want to read to you from John chapter 6, verses 35 through, 30, uh, through 40. 6, 35 through 40. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we partake of this Lord's Supper, and specifically of this bread, let us be mindful that this is representative of the body of Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
continue this communion and as we take of this cup let us be mindful that it represents the blood of your son that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and it was because of that act that we do have optimism we are optimistic about our future that our future lies with you the future of eternal life where there's no suffering there's no pain there's no heartache father as we Take this cup. Let us always be mindful of that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, I bring down heart. Then sings my soul. service where we contribute a portion of what we've earned and what God has blessed us with back to the church. And I'll just say this, I'm pretty optimistic 
about this congregation, about this church, and the direction we're moving. And these funds help us get there. And we work really hard to make sure they're not wasted and they're placed in the place where they need to be placed. And we thank you for everybody here for giving according to your means. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we could come and worship you. And Father, we thank you for the abilities that you've given us to earn funds, to earn money for us to live on, but also to give a portion to this church. And Father, we pray that these funds that are given are blessed and will help to grow this congregation to be a beacon in the, in the heart of downtown Tyler. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, it's time for our kids to go to the blast program during the singing of this next song. Also, if you'll pass your attendance cards to an aisle close to you, we got some young men coming down each aisle to collect these cards for us this morning. Before Bill's message to us this morning, let's all stand and sing How Great Is Our God. The splendor of a king,
Well, in addition to happy birthdays to our dear sweet sister Carolyn, um, as I understand it, it's also Eric Thornton's birthday, and since he failed to remember that, um, I'm going to do that for him, and we'll probably not be talking to him for a couple of days now that I've done that, but um, happy birthday, brother. I hope it's a great day for you today, and of course, for our dear sister Carolyn. Um, you know, it's interesting that Grant, and I appreciate one of our shepherds, Grant Knight, coming up and leading our communion and contribution prayers today uh, in Sean Stamp's uh, absence. And um, it's, uh, it's a, you know, one of those uh, kind of uh, uh, serendipitous moments, I guess, that he would lead a communion message that spoke about optimism as I'm beginning a new series on the book of Job. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> What do you know about Job and his story and the book named for him? I mean, we've heard a lot about him. We've heard a lot about the story. We know a little bit of some of the details. We know that it didn't go well for him and uh, went through a lot of stuff. And then it kind of did go well for him. And, and then we're done. Well, I, uh, I want us to look over the next several weeks, the next couple of months at... Um, the story in the book of Job. I like this quote. It's adapted from the satire site, the Babylon Bee. So this is satire. <clears throat> and I've adapted it a little bit. You'll know what I changed. New discoveries from archaeological digs and ancient texts have led biblical scholars to believe that, in addition to all of the other catastrophes and maladies that plagued Job in his life, he was also a huge Texas Rangers fan. <clears throat> This really adds yet another excruciating layer to Job's sufferings, they said. Then added, we also have reason to believe that Job's friends were New York Yankees fans. <laughs> Sounds right. Sounds almost exactly right. Have you ever wanted to look up to heaven and just ask, what is going on up there? What is going on up there? We almost want to say, is anybody minding the store? I believe that Job is a real story about a real person who really lived and experienced the things described in the book of Job. That's my understanding. It's doubtful that the main character, Job, was the author of the book that bears his name. Job likely lived sometime between the time of Abraham and David, so sometime between 2000 and 1000 B.C. or B.C.E., in what we have called the patriarchal age of biblical history. It has been suggested that the book of Job was written either during that time, the patriarchal age, or around the time of the exile that we talked about in some of our Bible classes this morning, sometime in the, around the 6th century B.C., the writing of the book of Job makes the translation difficult in many places, as does much of the Old Testament, though the meaning and the message of the book is clear. The book forces us to ask a simple question. Why do I serve God? Job describes the journey of learning to trust God when difficult times come. The book of Job reveals to us the honest struggle of one who learned to trust God rather than his own understanding of God and the way God works in his world. Let me say that again. 
Job himself and the book of Job calls us to examine whether our trust is in our God who is sovereign or if our trust and our faith are in the way we believe and understand God should act. Job started out with the latter, believing in God very deeply, but with the faith that said, this is how God should act, and that's what he trusted in. And then all of that was turned upside down. It's the question of motive. Do we serve God only for what we can get from him, only so that he will bless us in this life or the next? And I think those are good reasons to believe and serve and obey and and follow God. But if there are only reasons, then our faith will be destroyed sometime during this life. Either in a way that is obvious, we leave God, we leave His church, we leave His Word, or in a way that's not quite so obvious. We just harbor all of that resentment inside of us because God wasn't there when we needed Him, because God didn't do what we thought that God should do. And we never forgive Him for that. Do we serve God because we're afraid of punishment if we disobey Him? Again, a good reason to be obedient to God, but not the most mature reason. Or do we serve God because God, as we sang right off the top this morning, because God is worthy? Because He's worthy of our worship no matter how He acts or doesn't act in our world. How great is our God, we just sang. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all the world will sing, how great is our God. That's an easy song to sing when everything's going well, right? What about when everything's not going well? Can we still sing that song and actually mean it? Actually believe it? That our God is great and our God is worthy and our God is sovereign even though we don't have a clue why he's doing what he's doing in this world, in my world. Some people have called this consumer Christianity. It's related to what we're talking about. This selfish consumer Christianity is perfectly at home and thrives in our selfish, secular, consumer-driven, give-the-customer-what-they-want, 21st century America. A recent article says this, Consumer Christianity places our needs and desires at the center of God's universe. When I say that out loud, it sounds so silly and blasphemous. But when I'm living that way, it doesn't sound so bad. (laughs) Consumer Christianity places our needs and desires at the center of God's universe. Religion is a means to an end, a more spiritual method of achieving our desires, whether they are the products of advertising or of nobler sources. Those who relate to God as the almighty provider hold a decidedly one-dimensional view and understanding of him God gives and we receive. Again, is God our provider? Yes. Do we trust him to provide for us? Yes. 
Is that the only reason that we worship him and serve him? And you see the problem there, right? What happens when God doesn't provide for us the way we think he should? If that's the only reason that we are following him and serving him, then when those days come, and for almost everyone, at some point or another, they will, what happens to our faith? Through consumer Christianity, the value of God in our lives becomes predicated on how well God fulfills our needs. Whether that's a better marriage, our emotional well-being, a meaningful life, or an enthralling worship experience. Our view of God becomes something one study referred to as a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. None of us would ever say, that's what we think of God. But take a look inside your heart. Take a look inside your prayer life. Take a look inside your attitude. Have we reduced God to a divine butler and a cosmic therapist? And when he doesn't bring us what we want, and when he doesn't heal our emotional lives the way we want, what then? In the end, consumer Christianity becomes a self-serving religion. It's a recipe for spiritual disillusionment and a formula for a shallow faith. And that's what Job had. And God demanded that Job grow past that. And I believe he demands the same of us today. So again, the question of the book of Job is, why do you serve God? Ask yourself, why do I serve God? When it all comes down to it, why do I serve God? And be honest with your answer. And ask yourself that throughout these studies. Related question, will I serve and trust God even when I just don't get him? And that's the title of this sermon, but also the title of this series. Trusting God when you just don't get him. What happens to your faith then? When God doesn't act the way you think God should act. When God doesn't answer your prayers the way you think God should answer your prayers. When God is not acting in his world, in your world, the way you think a sovereign, all-powerful, all-merciful, loving, just God should act. And that is really the question of the book of Job. You've heard me say many times I've come to believe two things about God. I believe that God exists and I believe what? I'm not him. And if I really believe that I'm not him, then what's going to happen is there are going to be times when he doesn't act the way I would if I were God. Am I going to be okay with that? You see, that's really what happens with Job. Job always believed that God existed. But he had limited God to his understanding of how God should be. And what that means is he had put himself up as God. 
and when God didn't act the way Job thought he should, then he nearly lost his faith. I don't think he did, but he came close. Will I serve and trust God even when I just don't get him? Will a person serve and worship God if there is nothing in it for them? That is the question of the book of Job. And the interesting thing about this is that theme text, that question of the book of Job is asked by none other than Satan himself. And that gets us to Job chapter 1. When God throws a challenge at Satan, it is Job who is caught in the middle This is very interesting to me how this all plays out. In Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Good guy or bad guy? Really good guy. Verse 2. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Faithful man, obedient man, good family man, wonderful businessman, very wealthy, very well respected by everyone. Verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job, not his children, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. He offered sacrifices for his children. That's how devout he was. One day, verse 6, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the adversary, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And if I'm Job, and I'm seeing this going on, which of course he doesn't, but if I am, when God starts speaking, I'm going to go, no, 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 no. Oh, you had to bring me up, didn't you? One of the real perplexing and troubling things about the book of Job is that it's God who brings up Job, not Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, when Satan tells God, hey, you've built a hedge around him, later on, Job is going to say God has built a hedge around him and has trapped him in there and is punishing him and won't let him out. Here, Satan says, you've built a hedge of protection around him and you've given him everything in the world he could possibly want. Of course he follows you. He's got a great family. He's got wealth. He's got a great reputation. He's got his own personal health. Of course he's going to follow you. Does Job serve God for nothing? You take those things away. 
and he will curse you to your face. Why does Job follow God? Satan says it's because God gives him stuff and provides him with stuff and answers his prayers yes. How will God react? Will God say, no, 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 I know Job's heart, that's not it. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. When God throws a challenge at Satan, it is Job who is caught in the middle. Job and his friends had certain beliefs. They believed in the wise and the fool. The wise was the person who was obedient to God and served God and followed the law. The fool was the person who did not reverence God. And God blessed the wise and he cursed the fool. Their theology was simply this, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That was it. And in Job's life, that's how it had been. He was righteous and he had prospered. What's going to happen when that's no longer the case? And so secondly, God turned Satan loose on Job, though not completely. Again, verse 12 of chapter 1, God says, okay, have at it, but you can't touch him. Take everything away that I blessed him with, but you can't touch him physically. And so we know what happens from there. This is round one. (laughs) His livestock are taken, his servants are taken, his children are even killed. And the losses come in rapid fire order. While he was speaking and giving Job the bad news, another man came with bad news. And then another man came with bad news. The pain and reality of these losses is seen in how much Job loved and cared for his children. Again, sacrificing for them. So concerned he was for them. The fact that later in his life Job had other children helps to ease some of the pain perhaps, but they could never take the place of their older brothers and sisters in the hearts of their mother and father. Just ask anyone who's lost a loved one, who's lost a child and had other children, who's lost a sibling and had other brothers or sisters. But God limits. God is calling the shots. Satan has power and uses it to try to destroy Job's faith. Will a man serve God for nothing? Take away everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. He's just serving you and worshiping you and obeying you because you give him stuff. Because you take care of him. Don't do that and he'll curse you to your face. And so that gets us to chapter 2 and round 2. Again, there's a limit. The limit is this. Earlier, God had said you can't touch him. This time, here's what Satan says in Job chapter 2, starting with verse 3. This is the back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Wow. Verse 4. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. 
And so round two starts, Satan says, okay, sure, but you won't let me hurt him physically, and if, he, if I do that, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, fine, but you can't kill him. Interestingly enough, that's the one thing Job prayed for later. God, finish the job. Take my life. But God had set that limit. Satan is still acting, but God forces him to only act within the limits that God establishes. And so he strikes him with these horrible, painful sores all over his body. His wife comes and says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? He's got it in for you. His friends will come and be of absolutely no help once they start talking. And we don't really know the tone in Mrs. Job's uh, words. In chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Which is exactly what Satan told God Job would do. If he took all these things away. Job replied, verse 10, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. And that's different than what the narrative reads in chapter 1. At the end of round 1, it just says Job didn't sin. At the end of round 2, it says Job didn't sin in what he said. And when he does speak, we get a look, a deeper look, an honest look into his heart. And how he struggled. Job was faithful and trusted God when he had his children, his wealth, his reputation, and his health. How will he respond to God when all those things are taken from him? How would we? How will he respond when God is not acting the way God is supposed to act? How will we respond? How do we respond when God isn't acting the way we think A sovereign, all-powerful, all-loving, merciful, just God should act. Will we take our worship away? Because God doesn't act the way we think God should act. Or is our trust and faith in our God? And not in what we understand about Him. Finally today, Job's friends come to help and comfort him. (laughs) In chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come, and when they see him, they can't believe it. They sympathize with him. They're there, and they sit together, and they don't say a word. They tear their robes. They do the sackcloth and ashes thing, and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. At the end of chapter 2. And I want to say, if only they had stopped there. (laughs) Because when they do start taking, they're going to give a clinic on what you shouldn't say to someone who's suffering. (laughs) What you shouldn't say to someone who has lost a loved one. They do all the wrong things and say all the wrong words. But before we hear from his friends... We do want to admire them for this. They sit with him in silence and they share his grief. That they did right. And sometimes that's all you can do.
before we hear more from them and from Job responding to them, Job shows us how to verbalize our feelings when your body and your heart and your spirit are suffering and God is doing nothing about it. Job chapter 3 is a perfect example of how to honestly verbalize your disappointment with God. And you say, oh, Bill, we should never say that out loud. Job does. And we'll see that next week. So as we close, would you serve God if there were nothing in it for you? Would you serve God if there were nothing in it for you? Satan's question. Do these people serve you for nothing? You've given them all these blessings. Take those away and they'll curse you to your face. Would you serve God if there were nothing in it for you? Would you serve God if you could not understand his actions or his inactions? Is your faith based on your understanding of God or is your faith based on God? You say, well, Bill, that's all we can go by is our understanding. Well, not true. Not true. Because sometime along the way, you have not understood what God is doing. And if you continue to follow him, then you are living and acting like someone whose trust was in the God rather than the God's actions. Finally, would you serve God simply because he is worthy? You are worthy of my praise. What would you add to that? God, you're worthy of my praise if you heal my marriage. God, you're worthy of my praise if the test results come back favorable. God, you're worthy of my praise if the church is doing X, Y, Z. But God, if you're not meeting my expectations, then all bets are off and you're no longer worthy. And when we get there, we put ourselves on the throne as God. Would you serve God simply because he is worthy? You are worthy of my praise, we say. And so before Job can work through all of this, he's got to work through it, and that's okay. In fact, he's blessed by God at the end because he honestly struggled and faced his difficulties, unlike his friends. And so he can't get to that part of trust and obey until he gets through chapter 3 and venting, expressing some very hard things to hear about what he thinks about how God is running his world. And the way he responds to his friends, I think the power in the book of Job are the speeches of Job, starting in chapter 3. This morning, will you trust and obey? Trust! I guess they could have written that song, Understand and Obey. <laughs> Wouldn't have been as catchy. Are you willing to trust and obey? God says to believe in Jesus as the one Son of God. To repent of your sins, to change your life. So that it's more in line with the word of God and the will of God. 
to confess that faith before others and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you willing to trust and obey today? If you've not done that, we'll help you do that. If you're wondering how to do that, we'll be glad to talk to you. To help you know what that means. To learn what Job learned. To trust in God. And to live obediently to Him. If we can help you with that, come as we stand and sing our song together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust this day that uh, we can come together and worship you and learn more about your word. Please take what we've heard here today and apply it to our lives every day and come back at the next point in time. Please be with us as we leave here and keep us safe. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.